dimensional, transforming, musical, linguistic objects. Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. I'm Lorenzo and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. We've got a special treat for you today. It's Fraser Clark presenting his theories about who we are and how we got into this mess we're in. I like to call it the story of the monkey and the mushroom. Like his good friend Terence McKenna, Fraser has come to have a deep appreciation of the importance of psychedelics in human evolution. To give you a better idea of what you're about to hear, let me uh, read the complete title of Fraser's story he's about to tell you. His title is Reversing the Big Lie, the true story of Monkey's marvelous trip from the African jungle to inner and outer space, a short history of the human species. Now, Fraser uh, was kind enough to make this recording specifically for all of you out there in the psychedelic salon, and he designed it to make you feel as if maybe you're sitting around a fire and talking perhaps after a long night of dancing, I would guess. Now, when I first heard this recording, I pictured myself passing a pipe around among a few friends and then saying to him, So, Fraser, what's your take on how a bunch of psychedelic bipeds made it all the way from the jungle to the moon and back? And here's what he said. Reversing the Big Lie, the true story of Monkey's marvelous trip from the African jungle to inner and outer space. A short history of the human species. The genetically modified society in which we live has no heart, no psychic centre. Indeed, it actually encourages us to concentrate on looking out for ourselves. We, supposedly as citizens, share and feel no common vision, nor does our community have any agreed overall purpose. The signs of social breakdown are now so common we've begun to think they're natural. What we most like is the social bonding that links us all together as equal on some spiritual level. This is written from what I believe is the longing in the secret heart of each of us for the truth and for the better life which we sense could be or which we remember from some distant past. It's an attempt to present the true history of the human species as opposed to the big lie in which we've been embedded, in a manner that satisfies Terence McKenna's nostrum that, if the truth can be spoken so as to be understood, it will be believed. In order to avoid argumentation, I've concentrated on sketching the overall outline, the skeleton, while staying as clear as I can of details. If I even have succeeded, then endless details will be filled in over the years to come. The evolutionary history which we human apes have been taught about ourselves is actually the exact opposite of what really happened. I call it the big lie, and it was originally imposed on us monkeys by a tiny sociopathic minority, never more than a couple of percent. Understanding the truth about how we got here as a species matters because it will define our potential future. The big lie is exactly opposite to the truth for a reason. The best way to keep us in utter ignorance is not to create any old lie, but to reverse the truth. That way, if any contradictory information does sneak through, it sounds like utter nonsense, the opposite of the truth, which is the problem I face here. Until very recently, almost no way existed of discovering and no way at all of informing the population that the big lies reality model was imposed, as we now know, with total contempt for most of the ape-human species, utter hypocrisy, and the most truly brutal slaughter and barbarous harassment of literally millions of people who believed in the opposite model. Though the big lie is largely discredited now thanks to our ever-increasing knowledge, the ingrained, never-questioned attitude to life which its embodied reality model has imposed in us, first on pain of death and still today by social derision and exclusion, is much deeper and harder to spot. It is established in our society's upper echelons, 
who long ago forgot the true story and merely concentrate on maintaining the superior social position the big lie has granted them. And it's established more deeply in our basic assumptions about life and reality than we even begin to realise. If you doubt this, there's a test coming up which I still fail myself. It all kicks in when we turn from the discredited lie to discuss the true story, the demonised story, the devil's version. For remember, the perception that it's precisely the opposite of the truth has been meticulously and ruthlessly cultivated in our cultural DNA over generations. The true story of Monkey's marvellous trip from the African jungle into inner and outer space is going to sound utterly fantastic impossibly idealistic, deeply irresponsible, worthy of being illegalized, burned at the stake, and so on and on. For, despite the brave researches of many alternative thinkers over the last century, each excavating their own specialist areas, this is the first time the true story has been assembled as a single, simple plot, understandable by all. And I pray, if the truth can be spoken so as to be understood, it will be believed. What or who done it? What triggered Monkey's marvellous trip? The primary challenge for all evolutionary theories is to explain what is far and away the most spectacularly dramatic leap forward since the single-celled amoeba appeared on this planet. Marine life moved to the land 350 million years ago. It took 300 million years for mammalians to appear. It took 45 million years for humanoids to split off from the basic chimpanzee line. Modern humans emerged a third of a million years ago, and in that cosmic second, they've swapped swinging in the African jungles for the global web, nuclear technology, and off-planet travel. Darwin's theory fits pretty well with the whole upward evolution from the single cell to the great apes. But when those monkeys stood up in their hind legs to form a new species, we entered a whole new ball game. We are talking of cultural evolution now, not slow physical increments over generations. And there is nothing in Darwin's theory that predicts such a continuous increase of complexity. Quote, the emergence of modern humans from the higher primates, with the enormous changes affected in brain size and behaviour, transpired in fewer than three million years. Physically, in the last hundred thousand years, we have apparently changed very little. But the amazing proliferation of cultures, social institutions and linguistic systems has come so quickly that modern evolutionary biologists can scarcely account for it. Terence McKenna, Food of the Gods. It's no wonder world religions have grown up to explain this miraculous acceleration. But let's be scientific and look at the simplest explanation, one that chimes with our own inner experience. Is there anything today which we know can change an individual totally, perhaps even in a single night? And here the true story begins. For if we push aside our cultural conditioning, it's obvious. Only two things can trigger behavioural modifications on the scale of ditching banana hustling for nanotechnology, religious conversion and drugs. And the greatest of these is religious transformation through drugs. Right? Although I concentrate here on one drug because I think it was the first and remains the primary catalyst right up till today, other hallucinogenic alkaloids in plants were also clearly chemical factors in the proto-human diet that catalyzed the emergency of human self-reflection. A cultured species committed to continuous evolution. Chimpanzee traditions ebb and flow from community to community across the continent of Africa. On any day of the year, somewhere, chimpanzees are fishing for termites with stems gently wiggled into curling holes, or squeezing a wad of chewed leaves to get a quarter cup of water from a narrow hole high up in a tree, 
Others are collecting ants by luring them onto a peeled wand, then swiping them into their mouths. These are all local traditions, ways of solving problems that have somehow been learned, caught on, spread, and been passed across generations. Rangham and Peterson, Demonic Males A million years ago, with the African rainforest receding and the great grassy plains appearing, more and more apes were moving away from hanging round the old tree of knowledge, standing up on their own two feet and experimenting with a whole new life strategy. The setting then for our true story was one of maximum individual transformation and cultural upheaval. Among chimpanzees readapting to life on the great treeless plains, there was nothing but scope for individuals to seriously affect the whole species. And at precisely this point, our ancestor encountered the magic mushroom. You can go to Africa today, as I have done, and you'll see that the primary activity of these apes, as they navigate the grasslands on foot, is nibbling at everything that looks interesting. It's inevitable then, rather than far-fetched, as the big lion has programmed us to react, that our ancestors encountered the giant psilocybin mushroom, which can stand nine inches high, pointing monkey to the stars. I've seen monkeys jump down from the trees, scurry across to a magic mushroom, swipe its head off, and bolt back up the tree. Ultimately, in our story, one or more experimentally-minded, identity-exploring apes changed radically. Radically enough to create, over a mere hundred thousand years, through traditions which were learned, caught on, spread and passed across generations, a whole new cultural species. The mushroom's first appearance is so perfectly timed as to suggest outside planning. Here, just when individual ego is most in danger of being aroused by this new walking in your own back legs away from the social enclosure of the tribe, bang, the old ego-dissolving group-bonding psychedelic makes its entrance. In fact, evolutionary researchers are discovering more and more that our ability to evolve was largely predicated on social bonding and caring, often via the females. What actual changes do mushrooms bring about in us and would have brought about in them? The answer is much easier to find than we've been led to think. For among the surprisingly few bits of bones, scraps of material, cannabis seeds in caves and scratchings on the walls, the only objective criteria we actually possess with which to pierce through in an exact manner to the lives of our ancient ancestors are the foods they ate and the drugs they consumed. We know in a quite objective manner how ancient shamanic peoples or now felt on magic mushrooms. And we know what kind of lives were lived by communities who revered them. It is simply an objective fact, embodied chemically somehow in the mushroom, that people who gave them prominence in their lives were cooperatively inclined, non-militaristic, in tune with nature and so on. People who drank alcohol, we know, were equally, were usually quite au contraire. Quote, as man emerged from his brutish past, there was a stage in the evolution of his awareness and the discovery of the mushroom, or was it a higher plant, with miraculous properties was a revelation to him, a veritable detonator to his soul, arousing in him sentiments of awe and reverence and gentleness and love to the highest pitch of what mankind is capable, all those sentiments and virtues that mankind has ever since held as the highest attribute of his kind. Gordon Wasson, the Road to Elusis. Regular, even one-off mushroom ingestion must surely be linked to self-awareness, the development of higher conceptualizing skills, a new sense of post-family, pre-urban community, the bonding that comes from tripping together, and spirituality as in arousing the questions of who am I, what is all this, and what is it for? These are precisely the new skills which we know differentiated the later Homo sapiens from previous great apes. Everything our early evolved ancestors first unlocked in their minds and psyches represent the highest spiritual attainments that we speak of today. 
and would certainly have triggered all the alternative explanations for our evolution offered by anthropologists as brainwashed as the rest of us monkeys. Mastery of fire, discovery of a wheel, language, and eventually the shamanic need for the great agricultures which developed. Other contending explanations, by the way, include bipedalism, binocular vision, the opposite thumb, the throwing arm. Quote, what is the essential difference between the chimp and the human ape that became us? It is not the acquiring of some new trick like language or control of fire or agriculture. The difference is much bigger than that, and one that would increase the creative gaining of all the other tricks. Is it not our very spiritual sensitivity, our higher emotional states, our soul bonding beyond the mere call of duty, beyond the demand of nature, the beginning to emerge from nature? Dennis McKenna, Food of the Gods. Certainly they would have quickly discovered the security problems around mushroom ingestion and formalized taking of them. This was the original model for the initiations which later dominated all pagan religions. Powerful allies like these would have quickly been perceived as dangerous if taken at the wrong time. Hence possibly the fear and taboos that later grew up around cult use of such plants. New cults, new movements, tribes no longer necessarily connected by blood family but by some new kind of vision, visions of a new reality model. The first brotherhoods are more likely sisterhoods, for most early shamans appear to have been women and agricultural. Agriculture was certainly in their domain. We could very well be descended from a single mushroom-inspired individual great ape who founded a super colony that became the first agriculture and then town, and which evolved at an evolutionary speed of light. Or there could have been several, even many such cults, starting with small groups here and there, maybe the people of the Marijuana or of the Amanita Muscaria in the north, most certainly evil game, but gradually coalescing into a new culture, a new exploratory species, which is utterly distinct from our tree-dwelling ancestors. All of these developments over a hundred thousand year period and their gradual coalescence into a new kind of human ape culture constituted what we nowadays call evolution. And this ongoing holy relationship with the magic mushroom, etc., is precisely what triggered and maintained that evolution. All of us modern apes have evolved from a stage of life in a tribal culture that revered and participated in regular full-moon ego-dissolving group mind shamanic sessions involving all members of the tribe. A very longing for a better life comes from there. Psychedelics dissolve ego. Tribes dedicated to a shamanic lifestyle from birth did not produce or certainly did not overemphasize individual ego. Let's not argue over definitions of individualism and collectivism, a healthy balance of which is clearly necessary. By group mind I mean the experience of community, identity with the whole species of community whose lack we atomized souls feel most deeply today. A healthy and evolving group mind, so distant from anything we experience today, will encourage maximum individuality, even if only in its own species' interest. A new planetary awareness, founded in knowing it for ourselves. Quote, Increasingly modern evolutionary primatologists accept the notion that modern Homo sapiens arose in Africa a hundred thousand years ago and made a second great outward migration from there to people the entire planet. They became users of fire, tools and language and emerged one hundred thousand years ago as self-aware individuals. Hans McKenna, Hood of the Gods. Over one to two hundred thousand years, around the planet as far as the Aborigines in Australia, this evolutionary culture spread and became dominant, as in preferred. This is why, wherever we modern apes have explored in recent centuries, we have found such shaman-based cultures. This was the original, and only, evolutionary culture. It seems clear that, though the second great outward migration of psychedelicized apes encountered several other allies, 
Amanita Mascara and Marwana Iboga and incorporated or rejected them, it was the shamanic society itself which became the rule. Indeed, it was initiation into some regular natural drug combination ritual that caused the evolution of the individual, or the ritual itself was enshrined as a central bonding feature of the tribe cult. Quote, These mysteries have brought us from rustic savagery to a cultivated and refined civilization. Rites of the mysteries are called initiations, and in truth we have learned from them the first principles of life. Cicero, the Roman statesman. Let us be as clear, though as undetailed as we can be, about this initiatory society that became the new tribal norm. In its simplest and fullest form, such shamanic initiations involved the convert in consuming the ally in a correct set and setting. Timothy Leary. The setting, the physical situation, is clear enough, as it is today for a psychedelic initiation safe environment where the hierophant is encouraged to let go of his usual defences. Obviously many variants of the set, the spiritual psychological expectations, were refined as evolution deepened into its maximum variety of experimentation. Many social models using different drug combinations evolved, but all involved dying to your old self, the personal ego, your previous model of reality, and being reborn into your higher self, new reality model, God, etc. It is absolutely critical to see the difference between these first primeval, naturally healthy religions, meaning shamanically effective, and the pathetically reduced fractals embodied in today's denatured churches. In exact contrast to taking anything on faith, we applicants for evolution were required to test it and know it for ourselves. An experience of inner and outer space is much more marvellous than hitherto suspected, and unity of all living beings, these were the basic revelations. Group mind, all in this together, and social bonding of the whole community were the results. And we know that women shamans played a large part, caring, nurturing, letting down defences, protecting, and that the vast majority of societies that grew up around the central initiation were cooperative tribal matriarchies who practiced goddess worship. One word on the origin of the gods. How would our monkey have felt after his initiation had worn off? How to express the difference in his daily behavior? Would he not look back on his shamanic level as like being a different person, another being? Either you'd become or actualize someone else, higher self, or you'd been possessed by some higher entity in the plant. This was most likely the origin of the gods. This new species then successfully evolved, prospered and multiplied. And as human ape communities grew in size, the new evolutionary imperative demanded experimentation with more and more complex forms of community organization than the original unanimous consensus of the smaller tribe. Commands, chiefs, kings, priests, warrior castes, temples, emperors and church monasteries struggled for dominance. When in some of these experimental social collectives some apes turned away from the community bonding rituals, they began to individually devolve once more. But either the new chimpanzee trick did not stick, or the competitive elites which were thrown up remained small. As long as spiritual initiation remained central to the community, general evolution continued. Quote, Without the sacred mysteries, life for the Greeks would be unlivable, for they hold the whole human race together. Zosimos, Greek historian. The common mistake of big lie indoctrinated historians is to interpret a society by its self-confessed rulers, but any pre-Roman empire was more in the emperor's eye than in reality, with little effect on the species evolution. Without today's global instant communications, a royal decision might never arrive in your valley, and the populations of what we now call civilizations probably never even heard of them in their whole lives. 
The thread running through the period is this. As long as the bonding initiation ritual remains at the heart of a community, even just in the local valley, people still govern themselves as all mammals have recently been proved to do. Namely, the pack acquiesces with alpha males' decisions in very defined situations. Access to females, for example, or the highest hill in town. But in all serious situations, works on a 51% group mind decision, with the alpha male counting as just one vote. Quote, The shaman is a humanist who is vitally interested in the archaic traditions of his people. He is also concerned with the social dynamics in the community and consequently often finds himself assuming the role of sacred politics, resolving social conflict. Shamanistic trance, frequently induced by powerful hallucinogens, demonstrates the divine origin of the rules regulating social relationships. This is the means whereby the shaman restores harmony to the community. John Halifax, Shamanic Voices Certainly the legends of Atlantis and other highly developed civilizations, and the folk memories and the mythologies of so many of the planet's peoples, Hark back to this evolutionary stage. Could the whole spread and psychic network of this true civilization of increasingly humanoid beings have been in communal telepathic communication, as some maintain the animal world still is? Certainly something still lurks like a genetic imprint in the secret personal longing in every modern ape's heart. Whence did it come, this still quiet voice of our natural conscience? like a knowledge deep in our memory of how life was or was meant to be. This true civilization appears to have reached its finest cultural flowering around 6000 BC in Tassili, a vast area of caves in southern Algeria, where a mushroom-revering shamanic society has left cave paintings of mushroom-headed gods and shaman figures from whose bodies emanate distinct psilocybin shapes. They show our monkeys that developed a high level of art, language and civilization, and it's perhaps truer sense than anything we moderns, for all our fine and horrific technology have even glimpsed. Some scholars locate the origin of the later Dionysius cult at Tassili, and it seems likely that this whole cultural cluster spread as the desert took over up to the north coast of Africa, inspiring the Carthaginian Empire the Minoan goddess cultures, and that the Israeli slaves in Egypt were the last of the truly shamanic civilizations, enslaved by emerging new technocracies. Growing signs of decay, a corrupted level of pagan society. When an observer of our planet, watching from deep space for any appearance of unbalanced individual ego, a clear threat to the spiritual evolution we have been witnessing. The danger signs would almost certainly include the appearance of very large structures, especially if these appeared before great technological development. The pyramids are therefore a sign that an elite section of the newly evolved shamanic ape species must be turning away from the all-equal-in-a-circle spiritual lifestyle of initiatory culture. By the Greek era, this militaristic warrior caste, still tiny, is more permanently established, indeed with emergent lines of accession. Alexander the Great seems to have been the biggest psychopath in our history, with the many monastic centers of wisdom initiation he destroyed in the East. Indeed, his brutal response to the nuanced traceries of process represented by the symbolic Gordian knot is the perfect image of a falling back by some to the chimpanzee stage. However, though this tiny sociopathic group thought they were the future, the other 98% of Greeks and all other peoples remained shamanic-based. Do you seriously think that the activities of Prince Charles or George Bush are what's happening today? The annual social bonding initiations at the Temple of Eleusis, for example, were attended until the end of the 4th century by a large part of the population of Athens, all equal for the three days. Greek culture remained pagan shamanic, though Greek society had developed a corrupt, degenerative layer, an ego cancer that cut the individual from identification with the community, the species.
the refreshing effects of the mysteries practiced at that ancient mystic university and be described with total enthusiasm by every single famous Greek you can mention, all to a man regarding them as inspirations to their lives and central to their concept of society. We beheld the beatific visions and were initiated into the mystery which may be truly called blessed, and we beheld calm, happy, simple, eternal visions, resplendent and pure light, Plato. Nor were these great pagan philosophers the dry academic intellectuals imagined today by our fallen experts. Pythagoras was a charismatic miracle worker, Socrates a mystic who'd stand gazing rapturously into space for hours. Diogenes lived penniless in a jar by the temple door. By the time of the Roman era, the militaristic tendency is well developed and the rampant ego lust for empire is in full stride. Yet even so, a society among the rapidly evolving apes still possessed a parallel balance within it, and the vast majority of the populations of the abstract Roman Empire got on with their own local and personal evolutions rendering what it must to Caesar, but with scant attention. The Roman elite, however, were gradually co-opting the holy shrines where the people went to consume the healing herbs and commune with the gods. They were turning the intimate, inner revelatory group-bonding mysteries of the former pagan goddess temples into a spectacle for the public, a grand entertainment, complete with pillars, amphitheatres and all the rest of it. Simultaneously, alcohol, often interpreted as wine, but which usually included aromatic herbs and such, was beginning to replace or intermix with the sacred mission. Onward, Roman Christian soldiers, the fall into history. Then we must answer the, for us today, most important question of all. How, after 50,000 years of successful evolution involving discovery of all the other abilities which are usually perceived as causes of evolution, fire, the wheel, language, social structure, religion, after the establishing of the large agricultures and towns and cities and cooperative empires where the spiritual life remained central, how, after all this, did we fall into the Dark Ages? and eventually get to the terribly fragmented, schizophrenic, alienated, ruthlessly competitive, super-violent, planet-destructive, terrorist-threatened, high-testosterone, disintegrating aftermath of the big lie in which we find ourselves today. The argument that the military-religious stage to come was the necessary engine for the technological miracles of today must be seen for the self-justifying big lie that it is. Pagan civilizations built vast libraries to house hundreds of thousands of works of literary and scientific genius. Its natural philosophers speculated that human beings had evolved from animals. Its astronomers knew the Earth was a sphere, which along with the planets revolved around the sun. They had even estimated its circumference to within one degree of accuracy. The ancient pagan world sustained a population in Europe not matched again until the 18th century. In Greece, pagan culture gave birth to the concepts of democracy, rational philosophy, public libraries, theatre and the Olympic Games, creating a blueprint for a modern world. Surely the more open a culture, open, open-minded, the more group-bonded, then the faster and more balanced will be its discoveries. We must fairly consider the possibility that we'd already be populating the nearest planets if the disaster had not struck which arrested evolution completely. And certainly we'd have none of the ecological side effects and sociopathic business culture which now threaten us. The disaster began, and simultaneously the big lie, in 321 AD, when... For its own nakedly selfish motives, the desensitized, competitive and essentially male warrior mind of the degenerate Roman elite formed an unholy alliance with the least shamanic religion available. Emperor Constantine showed up at the notorious Council of Nicaea, a conference of the head bishops of one of the many Gnostic Christian sects 
that actually represented a renaissance of the pagan spirit. It wasn't the biggest, nor the fastest growing, and certainly not the most persecuted. That was a part of the big lie to come. But that meant nothing to Constantine. What he wanted was a standardized, unifit, omnicultural religion, think Coca-Cola, that could unite his disparate empire as he perceived the vast majority of normally evolving communities of great apes. Something to make everyone feel the same. No longer Roman and no longer Christian, today's corporations and meta-governments perceive and project the same reality model. And this sect, unlike the others, was already an autocratic organization, complete with bishops, experts who made decisions for its, well, sheep, its Christian soldiers. Precisely the sort of religion an emperor could work with. This sect put their stress on faith, Faith that 300 years before, some guy, without a single historical trace, had done the ego dying for you. All you had to do was have faith that your moral superiors knew the facts. It was perfect for, well, busy consumers. Quote, The Romans needed a mystery religion because they were always popular with the people. But mystery religions were led by mystics and philosophers who had the audacity to question and undermine the authority of the state. Literalist Christianity, however, was a mystery religion that had purged itself of all its troublesome intellectuals. It was a religion without mystics. It was the outer mysteries without the inner mysteries. Form without content. Freakin' Gandhi, the Jesus mysteries. The bishops in Nicaea had just voted on a range of issues when Constantine informed them of his decision to make their cult the official religion of the Roman Empire, under certain conditions. Bishop Eusebius then led the other bishops in totally reversing their previous votes. And so the big lie and its reality model were based on a fundamental schizophrenia from the very moment of birth. Indeed, as a sweetener, Eusebius was actually hired by the Halliburton, I mean, Roman Empire, to write the emperor's official biography. Move over Machiavelli and give Heinrich Goebbels the news. No wonder the first Christian emperor, after fixing the deal, could go home with a clear conscience, strangle his mother, pillage, plot and poison till his deathbed, and then convert to Christ by saying aloud, I believe this guy who's it died for my what's it's, and entered heaven through a special entrance in his palace. I kid you not. Grok the enormous threat to our species continuing evolution by imagining the thoughts of this simple man of God, even dumb, miraculously catapulted into membership of the planet's super-rich elite. Here Satan's whispers in his ear, as he gazes across Rome from his splendid new villa. Now where was the emperor's brief? Ah, yes. One god plus one emperor plus one unifit religion. Here is what Eusebius taught from then on. Just as the word of God guides the heavens, so the Roman emperor expresses the will of God in the government of the civilized world. Could anything be more clear or depressing? The germ of the big lie was launched. America expresses the will of God in the free world and all civilized nations. George Bush, etc. Read, we are civilized, you're so many devil-worshipping towheads. Or here's a quote from the Evening Standard on July the 6th this year, discussing supposedly liberal U.S. Senator John McCain, expected to be the next president. He is infused with a self-belief that facts could not shape, that God is an American Christian and that his country is only ever moral and good. The second letter of Peter, accepted now as a later forgery, puts it this way. If you even say hello to them, you're a partner in their evil deed. The winners eventually established the big lie by demonizing our natural evolutionary allies and by slaughtering all who disagreed. 
aiming then to spin for Roman Christianity a history suitable to its new eminence. Eusebius mocked up the first Bible, more than 300 years after Jesus died, supposedly. Most of the writings of this unscrupulous father of church history are dismissed by modern scholars. In fact, he's been called the first thoroughly dishonest historian of ancient times. From literally hundreds of Gnostic Christ-initiation myths, he carefully sifted, edited, and plain counterfeited a hodgepodge of relevant scraps to push his cult's version in his employer's required direction. More authority, more security, more conformance, standardization of beliefs, no more of this personal liberation stuff which the emperor hates. Quote, After years of painstaking research, we concluded that the traditional history of Christianity was at best hopelessly inaccurate and at worst a pack of lies. Traditional history was written by the winners, but we have come to believe that the account of the origin and meanings of Christianity given by those dissident Christians is far closer to the truth. Freaking Gandhi and the Jesus Mysteries. There we have it in a nutshell. The big lie was written by the winners. And they were the winners for one reason only. They allowed themselves to be co-opted by an immoral military emperor. Over the next 1500 years, Roman Christianity proceeded to demonize and resign to the dust heap of history everything but everything that had predated it. Socrates, Buddha, Krishna, all were by definition primitive savages without Jesus. The big lie as it was developed demonized the very allies that caused and cause our spiritual evolution from the ape. These millennia old spiritual practices were not even discarded as mistaken. That would have been a blessing. But no, its practitioners were condemned to death for being demon worshippers. The Roman Christian Church taught that our original ancestors had been punished for daring to explore their own minds. It replaced our entire evolution with the original sin of Eve, the holy female principle, without which there is only imbalance as we have today, introducing Adam to the apple of the tree of knowledge. All inspiration which did not come via Holy Mother Church could only be from diabolical sources. All the great evolutionary strides the species had been making, a great liberal, egalitarian, open-minded, shamanic and extremely experimental culture, with vast libraries, sciences, techniques and art, all were condemned as devil worshippers. All the natural allies were redefined as temptations leading away from faith and mother church. No wonder that this mass turning away from the natural power plants precipitated the dark ages. Indeed, the whole definition of holy places, temples, churches, pagan copses, was turned into its exact opposite. Temples had been safe venues run by shaman priest experts where people went to take drugs to be initiated. Even worldly rulers had had to accept these socio-psychological laboratories as being outside whatever values the surrounding society happened to have. But all that was now exactly reversed. These holy drugs, of course, because they are freely available in nature and offer a direct line to goddess within or one's higher self, constituted and remain the single greatest threat to the church's monopoly. Quote, Whereas other cultures honour their ancestors as the source of their wisdom and civilization, we have vilified ours as devil worshippers. What has this done to the Western psyche? Freaking Gandhi, the Jesus mysteries. Roman Christianity also turned the female principle into witches. The Inquisition's Malleus Maleficorum, for example, was not known as the witch's hammer for nothing. It instructed the clergy how to identify, hunt down, torture and kill free-thinking women. Witches it defined as all women who seemed suspiciously attuned to the natural world. Female scholars, herbalists, nature lovers, gypsies and any midwife who used herbs to relieve the pains of childbirth for the church held that these were God's punishment for Eve's partaking of the apple of knowledge. Hence the idea of original sin. Conservative 
most deeply brainwashed historians admit to five million women in Europe being burned at the stake over a 300-year period. I say it was many, many more, and that's just in Europe. In Greece, the half-million pagans were slaughtered, men, women and children, in a single year. Quote, The Priory of Zion believed that it was this obliteration of the sacred feminine in modern life that caused life to be out of balance, marked by testosterone-fueled wars, a plethora of misogynistic societies, and a growing disrespect for Mother Earth, Dan Brown, the Da Vinci Code. And when Western explorers could reach distant cultures where they inevitably found shamanic societies practicing the original true story, they dominated and shattered them as had been done to their own in their lives. Indeed, they saw these people's natural awareness as placing them so far outside the world of Jesus that they were better off dead. With the emperor's power in their sails, this corrupted even before it began anti-nature, anti-truth religion, this devolutionary tendency, systematically destroyed every other spiritual tradition around, usually achieved by drunken mobs of black-wearing Christian hooligan book burners. And behind them, professionally paid fanatics destroyed just about all the evidence for the true story or squirreled it away in bottomless Vatican basements. The West won the world not by the superiority of its ideas or values or religion, but rather by its superiority in applying organized violence. Westerns, Westerners often forget this fact. Non-Westerners never do. Samuel Huntingdon. Christianity didn't just stop human evolution. Christianity actually reversed human evolution. Rome itself collapsed within a century and a half of going Christian. Some say that the Roman Christian uncivilization, which continued to spread across Europe and the world, was in truth the Roman elite continuing their power game by another route. By banning any original thinking beyond their outsider's teachings, it caused the Dark Ages, during which anyone who tried to live more creatively or just differently, experimentally, was viciously demonized and physically eradicated, including this, the Knights Templar, the Albigensians, Freemasons, alchemists, and any other network who tried to live in any other way. We ourselves would have been burned for hearing this essay. Quote, Western Europe, superstitious, dirty, diseased and degenerate, thrashed by the Arabs and Mongols and Turks, afraid to sail the ocean, cowered behind the walls of its towers and castles, stole, poisoned, assassinated and tortured, and pretended to be the Roman Empire and talked bad Latin. H.G. Wells. I could go on for 24 hours about the insanity of the big lies reality model, but let three more examples suffice. A 12th century monk described woman as a temple built over a sewer. Archbishop Usher, one of Christianity's great thinkers, no originality allowed, calculated and placed in the margins of the King James Bible that God created the entire world in the year 4004 BC. That's how out of touch with reality this madness went. And lastly, here's how William Bradford, an early American settler, described an attack by Captain John Mason on a Pico Indian village. Those that escaped the fire were slain with a sword, some hewed to pieces, others run through with their rapiers, and very few escaped. It was a fearful sight to see them thus frying in the fire, and the streams of blood quenching the same, and horrible was the stink and scent thereof. But the victory seemed a sweet sacrifice, and they gave the praise thereof to God, who had wrought so wonderfully for them thus to enclose their enemies in their hands and give them so speedy a victory over so proud and insulting an enemy. Insulting? Daring to believe a different story to the big lie? When Dan Brown says in the Da Vinci Code that the Roman Christian Church converted the world from matriarchal paganism to patriarchal Christianity by waging a campaign of propaganda demonizing the sacred feminine and obliterating the goddess from modern religion, he is telling half the truth. Fundamentally what it did was to demonize the female shamans and their natural psychoactive allies, 
that are the only true human rights we possess, indeed the only power which can actually awaken us instantly from any propaganda matrix, no matter how strong and which the competitive elite will always try to embed us, which of course remains their potential today. In the struggle for a future, freed of the effects of the big lie, drugs are our best hope. The genetically modified society in which we live has no heart, no psychic center. Indeed, it encourages us to, us to concentrate on looking after ourselves. We, supposedly its citizens, share and feel no common vision, nor does our community have any agreed overall purpose. The signs of social breakdown are now so common we've begun to think they're natural. What we most like is a social bonding that links us all together as equal on some spiritual level. So that's the true story of Monkey's marvellous trip from the African jungle into inner and outer space. The next chapter has been written by us right now. And the question now is, can we remake, are we remaking a shamanic culture based on the sacred circle of community before we all perish? Their only real answer is for every single one of us genuine, to genuinely feel that he or she is part of an overall community. This seems an almost insuperable task. If it's to occur, fundamental changes require both in our society and in ourselves as individuals. As members of a not very well-defined alternative movement, more and more people are clearly working to change the outer injustices still being created by the big lies reality model. But what's to be done with the embedded anti-social cultural hooligan strands at the top and at the bottom of our society? How are they meant to be made to feel part of an overall community again? What therapy will work for them? Because if we can't find a way, these victims of the old reality model will transform any freer and more tolerant society into a spiritual wilderness. These elements are also somewhat entrenched in each one of us and need to be worked on individually. Unfortunately, our deep conditioning means that the true story is still a long way from being accepted. On the outer level, the news is good. Through the Renaissance, the Reformation, science, and all the way up through the 60s love revolution, the millennial rave tsunami, and now the Band-Aid crusades, the big lie has been largely blown away but its reality model lingers on and on while its weapons get bigger. When Christianity was spreading around Europe, it captured the cities first and the countryside became the fundamentalist pagan holdout. Indeed, in one extreme view, the majority of the population remained vaguely pagan until the 1950s when television advertising, by intruding a pulpit into every home, finally corporatized them into good Christian idealized families. Today the same pattern has been followed by the pagan revival wave or whatever you want to call it. Every single city on planet Earth now has its own pagan alternative scene linked globally to an increasingly pagan global culture. This not Christian wave is a natural swelling up from people themselves. Not only was it not created by the corporations, they have been forced to market their products with, with basically pagan ideals, guilt-free nudity and frankness, tolerance, spontaneity, fun, organic and natural. This wave of personal freedom is growing at an amazing rate and is destined to become dominant. And the countryside and suburbia, think American Midwest, are the big lie holdouts. This is undeniable on a large historical level. Love and respect for inner and outer nature are the fundamental attitude changes required. But how deep do they go on each of us? We in the alternative movement can work on the outer level to change each of the big lies' negative effects. But when its reality model ultimately collapses, as seems inevitable, what's to stop us falling into a morally empty dog-eat-dog world? Back in the 1980s, I coined the term shamanarchy to describe what we must move to. Anarchy and chaos are where we could end up unless there is some kind of shamanic evolutionary force field into which the new awareness can naturally channel itself. Shamanarchy. But to recognize the truth in the true story is infinitely harder than breaking free of the lie. 
If you doubt this, here's a simple experiment. Think about something that happened, say, 3,000 years ago. Try as you might, and I've tried it for decades now, it is impossible to picture that date without dividing it into 2,000 years back to some guy who probably never existed, and then adding a 1,000 years before him. Even more deeply have we been trained for a thousand years and a score of generations about our evolutionary allies, the power-possessing plants. Obviously, over the years, several intelligent, open-minded scientists must have considered drugs as a trigger for evolution. But their reputations would have been utterly trashed if they dared to voice it. Even today, speaking of these subjects opens one to the danger of being seen as some kind of drug fiend. I only have to say this because we have all been so brainwashed, but of course it is not all about taking drugs. And it is certainly not about abusing or making these sacred but dangerous allies every day and mundane. Quite the opposite. You don't go to church every day. You go when you feel the need to be spiritually re-inspired. We shall continue to evolve as a species, and sooner or later our almost thoroughly generate class of ape rulers will lead us into destruction unless, as a global society, we can return to these original catalysts of the evolutionary spirituality we so badly need now, to the heart of our communal spiritual life, by which I mean in some sense an official UN planet religion. I know it sounds so far out, so far away, but all the other issues seem to me to gravitate around this central issue. I have explained why all of what I'm saying sounds insanely optimistic and emotionally immature. But look at the world today. We'd have predicted the colossal changes in public perception. People are way ahead of their leaders. What proportion of the billions of people who tuned into Live 8 are living more shamanic lifestyles than even two years ago? And can you doubt that if the eight leaders who recently met in Edinburgh had shared a magic mushroom tea initiation, most of the injustices in the world would have been solved overnight? Why not? It is easy to despair. So many millions being more deeply propagandized into the failed reality model even as we speak. How can anything be done in time? And yet, our natural allies can change each one of us in a single night. One initiation, each could do it. That's how close we are on an inner level. And, let's face it, with with or without approval, it is happening anyway, naturally, without anyone needing to encourage it. All I've been doing is explaining why it's happening, why it must happen. Social bonding and individual expansion, not capitalism and narcissism, are our only hope. Yet intelligent and seemingly liberated people can say of a natural plant which has been worshipped for longer in human history than agriculture itself that they don't need drugs. We don't need to walk. We could sit still all day. We walk because it's natural and healthy to do so. We walk and we consult the natural allies around us because, like our ancient ancestors, we value standing up on our own two legs and exploring new reality models. Quote, as a global society, we must find a new guiding image for our culture, one that unifies the aspirations of society with the needs of the planet and the individual. We lost something precious, the absence of which has made us ill with narcissism. Only a recovery of the relationship which we evolved with nature, with the use of psychoactive plants, can offer us hope for a humane and open-ended future. Terence McKenna, Food of the Gods. We are more deeply conditioned about this critical subject than all others. Even modern so-called pagans are deeply conditioned against the natural allies. We assume that the proposer must be talking about some kind of satanic abuse of the natural body. The exact opposite of the truth. It's evolution. It's got nothing to do with needing to. It's about self-triggering our species' totally natural and original evolutionary surge. Quote, The suppression of the natural human fascination with altered states of consciousness and the present perilous situation on Earth are intimately and causally connected. When we suppress access to shamanic ecstasy, we close off the refreshing waters of emotion that flow from having a deeply bonded 
an almost symbiotic relationship to the earth. As a consequence, the maladaptive social styles that encourage overpopulation, resource management, mismanagement and environmental toxification develop and maintain themselves. No culture on earth is as heavily narcotized as the industrial West in terms of being inured to the consequences of maladaptive behavior. We pursue a business-as-usual attitude in a surreal atmosphere of mounting and irreconcilable contradiction, Terence McKenna put in the gods. Private property, patriarchy, suppression of the weak, the female, the animal, and sex, and, above all, our natural shamanic allies. No wonder the modern barbarian human ape uses only a tenth of his brain's capacity. Reduced to alienation and atomization, cut off from a corrupt public life, with our proudest evolutionary social bonding ritual reduced to the mere football match or the Queen's speech or thanksgiving. Capitalism, competition and its believers innate never question assumption of superiority to all other peoples including us, the public. And proud of it. Here are some quotes from wannabe corporate executives introduced as the best and the brightest in a recent business programme on TV. It's brutal. It's tough. It's business. I start surveying people's weaknesses as I walk in the room. I'm anxious and at the same time I'm excited. Welcome to New York. It's the meanest and the most vicious city in the world. I wanted to hit her over the head with a shovel. I will take him out. It sounds so familiar to our modern ears that we can easily miss the point that it's the ruling social attitude in our society. Perhaps it is Roman, it's certainly ruthless, and perhaps it is Christian in its contempt for its victims. Yesterday a good friend in the business world told me how she'd overheard heard someone describing, almost boasting, to a group of fascinating young corporate heads how he'd been working in New York when 9-11 happened. Seems they could see the towers from their offices. How did they react? They immediately started working out how it would affect the market, should they move funds into gold and so on. Such people would have been banned at any pre-Christian society's initiation ceremony and driven out of any evolutionary-minded tribe. Today they are solid, sold to us as desirable. Such people or such a mentality constitutes surely the greatest threat to the human species. How right the Greeks were to hedge about this mystery, this imbibing of the potion with secrecy and surveillance. Perhaps with all our modern knowledge, we do not need the divine mushroom anymore, or do we need them more than ever, Gordon Wasson on the road to Eleusis. To conclude, first as the present growing alternative community in its widest sense, and eventually as a global society or federation of societies, we must reconnect with the cultural cluster of ideals, visions, longings, utopian ideas, spirituality and cravings for unity, peace and community which were almost certainly first stirred in their purest forms in archaic times, guided mankind until the Christian fiasco and could guide us again. Put it another way, every one of the burgeoning plethora of idealistic movements and ideas today which almost compete to focus our activity towards change, are details within the overall vision, as in seeing it as it is, which, when it is activated once more within each individual, will effortlessly inevitably bring them all about by general agreement. The live-aid type of mega-events and gigantic peace and equal Marxists express a new feeling for the planet and life, where many, many people experience a sort of group mind of being part of a community, of fighting for ourselves and our planet. Here's my slogan for the next decade. Make his story our story.
being a part of a community. That's what it's really all about. Whether you call it the tribe, the psychedelic community, the dance community, or however you want to call it, what we're actually doing here, I think, is creating a group mind that we're all beginning to experience on so many different levels. Something's up, my friends. Something big. I can't say what it is exactly, but I'm convinced that in the end, everything's going to be all right. How do I know that, you ask? Well, same way uh, all of you probably know it, too. And if you've never had that feeling, then you might want to consider having a little larger helping of exotic mushrooms the next time you dine. Well, I guess that's about it for now. My thanks to Fraser for his great words and to Georgina for her help as well. By the way, if uh, you want to see a text version of this uh, talk, uh, you might want to go to our website, uh, matrixmasters.com, and click on the podcast link, or just go to palenquenorte.org for the audio portion of our website. And there you'll find some more information about Fraser and a link to the text version of this talk, as well as a link to some important notes that fill in a few gaps Fraser had to leave in the interest of time. You'll also find a link to Fraser's website. And I want to, again, thank my friends at Chateau Hayuk for the use of their music. And a big thank you to all of you who are using some of your precious time to join us here in the Psychedelic Salon. For now, this is Lorenzo, signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.